Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Nick Winkleman. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Before working for the Irish Rugby Union, Nick was the director of education and training systems for EXOS. As the director of education, Nick oversaw the development and execution of all internal and external educational activities. As a performance coach, Nick oversaw the speed and assessment component of the EXOS NFL Combine Development Program and supported many athletes across the NFL, MLB, NBA, and national sports organizations, as well as the military. Nick recently completed his PhD with a dissertation focused on motor skill learning and sprinting. Nick is an internationally recognized speaker on human performance and coaching science. Beyond his professional accomplishments, Nick is a husband and father of two, and a primary reason I've asked him on Leave Your Mark is because of his ability to find a powerful work-life balance. Welcome, Nick. Scotty, honored to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, you know, I'm going to go into an a interesting question because you, you shifted into team sport from having worked at Exos and you started working with a an international rugby program and A to Z through the whole thing. Um, what caught you by surprise when you were introduced to the sport of rugby? When you, what was the, the thing you just really didn't expect to, to run into? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. And by the nature of it, you, you suggested there, you try to predict as much as you can when you're going to go into to a novel environment. But for me, it was a number of things. One, I had never worked in rugby. So to be honest with you, everything to some degree surprised me from making sure I knew team players on the, on the pitch, call it a pitch, not a field, uh, what those positions were, and let alone the, the physiological nature of the sport. So, so obviously there was the mechanics. But the other thing to add to that is I was coming to a new country. So obviously moved the entire family to Ireland. And I've learned a ton around uh, the culture around the people and around the customs, which, as you know, every single country, every single county is just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the day, you still have to work at the human level. So you're still learning about the people who've been in these positions for a long time and you're, you're the new person coming in. So I would say it was the sport that had daily surprises. It was the amazing culture that I learned from and had daily surprises and still learn from. And then it was the most meaningful part, which was the human interaction. And I think it creates a amazing environment for learning if you're up for the challenge, which I was. Mm. How's your family adjusted to moving over there? You know, they've, they've adjusted 
phenomenally well. Uh, to be honest with you, my wife was as excited around a new adventure and a new challenge as I was. And I'll never forget, I gave her a call because I was, I was just finishing up an interview uh, in London, of all places. And I said, hey, honey, they've offered me the job. And she just, she burst into tears. I mean, she mm. was so excited. And if I know anything about my wife, she, she wants to see the world. She wants to see everything it can offer. And for me to be able to offer that to her and my children has just been amazing. And, and does it come with its challenges? A hundred percent it does. But when you go into those challenges as learning and opportunities, which we do, it's, it's nothing but joy at the end of the day. Awesome. Well, I'm going to segue back to that life, which is your life now a little bit later in the, in the process, but I want to go back to when you were a kid, where did you grow up and, and what was life like for you as a kid with your family? Yeah. So I was born in Burlingame, which is just outside of San Francisco. My grandfather owned a shipping business. And at the time when I was born, my father worked for that shipping business. And I'll never forget, my grandfather would tell me that my dad would have to jump from one ship to the, ne- to the next in, in, the, in the San Francisco Bay. And, you know, holding his breath every time he did that because the dip down between those two boats would have been his last to hand the papers for, for the shipping company. But uh, it, was, it was a great job for him, and, and he loved it. My grandfather definitely loved it. But uh, my, my dad, he, he was in landscaping. So he was waiting for a job came to be in, in Oregon, Portland, Oregon. So we moved to Portland, Oregon when I was, was three, three or four. And I grew up there. I, I never really went to Oregon State University, went to high school there and, and definitely consider myself uh, an Oregonian. You know, in terms of my upbringing, you know, obviously you and I can see each other on the call. I, I have a new tattoo that, that says truth. Mm-hmm. And I spent years thinking about a tattoo, but inevitably I got to put on my forearm. And and I feel the word truth probably embodies what my parents gave me and and thus was part of the upbringing more than anything else. And that first and foremost as a value, honesty was coveted above all else. I would get in far more trouble if I lied than if I was honest about something that I had done wrong. And both my mom and dad were, were firm on that. But inevitably my dad and encouraged me to to pursue truth and to pursue commitment to, to knowledge in the way that he brought me up. And I did, I only came to realize this when I inevitably got into college and I realized just how, how thirsty I was for knowledge and information and inevitably fast forward to, to getting a PhD. But, but for me, truth, I would say, is one of the number one things that permeated or defined. Um, my parents never pushed me in sport, let's say. Uh, Sometimes I joke with my dad, I wish he had pushed me a little bit more. But the second principle I would say that really defined my upbringing was you finish what you start. And my dad held hard on that. So if we discussed something and I had committed to a sport and a few weeks into that sport, I did not like it. Uh, those were some of the toughest conversations my dad had with me, but he held firm. He's like, listen, it's not just about you in this situation. You've committed to that team or you've committed to that, to that coach or you've just committed to this responsibility and you're going to see it out. So th- this whole idea of truth uh, or pursuing truth and honesty and the way you carry yourself and the way you are, but then the way you, you, you live your life, you, you, you 
commit to something, you see it through because life is about more than just you and you have to hold up your side of the bargain. I would say from a, a principal perspective, those two things permeated my upbringing. And I just have to say, um, my parents were incredible role models on many levels as human beings, as my father, what it's like to, to, to be a father, to be a husband. He stood for everything that I still try to uphold in my own. So I feel very fortunate to have two loving parents that are still very loving and still learning from both of them. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, I know you have a few different eclectic interests and one of them obviously is sport and sport performance. Another is, you know, uh, sports science or information and knowledge. And, and another seems to be you being a DJ and I'm sure there's a few other ones. Um, so tell me about these little prongs of life and how you sort of started to get interested or excited about whether it was sport or about um, academics or, or what have you, how yeah. did that form for you? You know, it's interesting. Uh, look, look back at high school and there was, I could have done so much more, but at the same time, I look at where I am now and, and maybe the way I approached it was okay. But the key, the pinnacle moment for me was, was two things. It was my grandfather uh, and a guy named Rudy. Okay, so when I was a sophomore in high school, I played football, I was a lineman, and like many long in the day and still to this day, I was, was probably overweight by a, a number of standards, BMI and otherwise. But that wasn't the issue. Um, I just didn't feel on the outside uh, the way I felt, and, and it bothered me tremendously. And probably one of the things, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that defined my, my upbringing uh, was this personal struggle with, with weight and, in reality, body image. Mm. But inevitably, my grandfather said, well, let's do something about it if it bothers you. And with that whisper of my dad in the back of my head, say, you, you, you finished, we started something. So he got me a membership uh, at a club and got me a nutritionist and a number of things. And I was just in a good headspace to commit to it. Uh, around that same time, I met a guy named Rudy. Uh, Rudy worked at Costco and came in as a step-in strength conditioning coach at my high school in the afternoons. And Rudy was as close to a, a Zen Buddha type individual as, as, as anyone could expect to meet in their lifetime. Uh, very much so in the spirit of, of, of this call in the podcast, Scotty, he approached the weight room as, as much of a forum to learn about life as it was to lift weights. Mm. And meeting him around the same time that my grandfather empowered me with this opportunity and this responsibility I really started to fall in love with training and I started to fall in love with development and just being able to develop your body and developing your mind. And, and I only came to really appreciate this love of development uh, in the way we're talking about it now later on in life, but nonetheless, the roots of it were being laid uh, at that time. And fast forward, I committed to uh, a very stringent lifestyle shift and a, a ruthless physical development program. And inevitably, I started to write my own programs. I started to run in agility for myself, and I fell in love with it. And in about six months, I lost something like, I don't know, 50 pounds, okay? And I'll never forget because the entire time I was going through that mental and physical transition, I just had this picture, Scott, in my mind. And I've said this before on, on, on other podcasts, but this picture in my mind was me walking straight through the doors of Tualatin High School, taking a left, 
past the trophy case into the junior hallway, everyone just casually catching up from the summer. And just that moment, that half a second where the air was sucked out of the room and people looked at me and for one moment saw me on the outside the way I'd always felt on. And I can proudly say I walked into that moment full stop, turned the corner, and there was whispers. And for me, while to some it is a bit superficial that it was a body image thing. For me, it wasn't just about that. While the external facing change was one of body and, and one of observable change, for me, the greatest change was, was on the inside. It was in that moment, literally in that moment, uh, that defines me and that I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life giving those kind of moments to other people. Mm. And inevitably, that came through the forum as it still is today, of strength and conditioning. Uh, but slowly but surely, my ideas around coaching and, and other facets of what we do, psychology, are starting to bubble up. And I just want to make an impact in this world because what was given to me by Rudy, grandfather, parents, and myself is, is a gift I believe everyone should experience multiple times over in their life. That's awesome. I really like that. You, uh, so you just sort of talked about that, but uh, I'm curious as to how you found, uh, as you went into the world of performance coaching, and you can sort of splinter this in different directions, but you obviously have an affinity and interest in the, call it the psychology, call it the, um, the whole, uh, intellectual and psychological side of how somebody learns and how somebody becomes coachable, et cetera, seems to have been, and, and you being an educator in it um, versus just being a coach. And I don't mean that in a derogatory manner. I mean it in a sense that you obviously are very curious in that. What struck that curiosity? Where did you go from I'm coaching people or was it just always something that was there? You know, I, I think my mom always told me I talked too much. So I think there was something from, <laughs> from quite, quite a young age that, that language has always interests me. Uh, I only realized that, you know, on reflection and I could completely, but there were, there were two, two pinnacle moments, two definable moments that I feel set me on a path to become probably more interested in, how we coach uh, than what we coach, okay? Not that what we coach isn't important. It's just my personal interest is in how we, we translate that. So the first one was, again, a sophomore year. <laughs> this time that sophomore year was in, was in college, State University. And I'll never forget my good friend, uh, John Cochran. He handed me the old blue CSCS uh, NSCA book which I, I just devoured on top of uh, going to school for exercise science. And he said, hey, Nick, there's a, uh, there's a personal training cert course at the rec center. It was called, uh, still is called Dixon Recreation Center. He said, there's a personal training course down there. It's, uh, it's, it's a quarter or a term long. Can't recall what they, what they had it back then. And anyhow, you might be interested. So I went down there and I took this kind of in-house personal training course and I just, I fell in love with strength conditioning and, and again, and what was interesting about that experience was this guy, JC, as we called him, he invested in me heavily. 
and his time. And, and I invested in him with my time to learn and get as much from him as possible. And he did a lot of different things. But one thing that he did is he work with bodybuilders. So bodybuilders from the Corvallis area, just amateurs, would come in and, and work with him. And I observed, gosh, probably hundreds of hours of sessions. And this was my first shot at learning how to, let's say, coach people in a personal training context. And the one thing, Scott, that always stood out about JC was that he, he used language, sometimes to good effect, sometimes not. But on the training floor, he used language to great effect. And people would come to him, bodybuilders would come to him because he could get them to focus on one muscle or one movement in such a way that they could activate the the low trap or the posterior shoulder or the VMO, these nuanced muscles that they wanted to get plump before a show. And he used language more than anything else to wield this. And I'll never forget my, my mentor at the time, again, still to this day, a guy named Guido Van Reisigam. I went up to him after a few sessions said, man, there's something that JC does differently. I think there's something about our language is pretty important. It's this training thing is important, but gosh, the way we communicate seems to have a material difference. And I'll never forget, I told him, I think I got to write a book one day called The Form Within. And so I was enamored by this idea. Now, inevitably, the, the what superseded the how. I had to learn about training theory and periodization and the functional movement screen and everything. So I, I probably put those psychological ideas on the back burner. However, I think I tried to embody them from a good coaching perspective all my life. Uh, fast forward to 2009, I believe. It was the first year that I took over the NFL Combine program from Joe Gomes at, at Exos. It was a huge honor. It was, it was something I had been working towards for three years and preparing for. And I'll never forget in that first year, I coached the program, but I wasn't satisfied when it was over. And that while the players had, I, I think, at least performed to standard, I, I hadn't made them work. I didn't feel I made the connection at the human level. I didn't feel I made the, the connection really at the learning level that I had hoped. And I'll never forget, it was one session. Joe Gomes happened to be watching it. And I was standing on the side, and I was just coaching. I mean, Scott, I mean, I was coaching. It was textbook. <laughs> there was a million cues coming out a minute, right? You know, I could imagine my biomechanics professors applauding me. I, it, was, it was done. I was at the pinnacle of my career. But then I finally just kind of consciously looked up. And, and I looked at my players' eyes, and I looked at their body language, and I really paid attention to how they moved after a cue went out. I'm like, this isn't making a difference. Like, if this information is getting in, it's by chance, not choice. I'm saying so many things here. There's no way they could possibly be processing all of it. And most of my cues are coming while they move, which at times I could see was distracting them. And this a hole in my, in my soul, so to speak, because I was like, I've spent so many years focusing on all this training methodology. But the reality is, if I can't get out of my head into their body, what was it all for? And long story short, I started studying motor learning and I fell in love with that idea of, of the form within or how we focus to move. And inevitably that led me to, to the likes of, of guys like Richard McGill, a, a famous you know, motor learning theorist 
and Gabrielle Wolf, who's popularized ideas around attentional focus and cueing, and Jared Porter, who's done the same, as well as other areas, and just started to fall in love with how we coach, how we communicate, and really broadly, how we develop relationships that nurture learning in a human performance context. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to come back to this. But I want to weave into this. You obviously have a real interest in music, and I didn't know until just recently that you were a you were a DJ uh, late at night and uh, enjoyed that part of your life, so to speak. So where does that come from? And and maybe there is a connection, and maybe there isn't. But how does the 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 artistic sort of connection with music, lyric, uh, sound, etc. How does that connect to your style of coaching and the things that you yeah. listen to or hear? It's funny that you've you've asked that because I find myself using music so much more in a metaphorical context mm-hmm. when I'm teaching and when I'm describing certain things to people. And so you've kind of hinted at it. Maybe there was a certain level of, of a subliminal interest, so to speak, that connects the two. And, and you know, funny enough, I, I think I have some thoughts there. The way it started was twofold. One, I'll never forget. My wife was like, you need a hobby. Like you never switch off. And I'm sure there's many people listening to this that have thought that themselves. And I remember I was the kind of person, I'm never going to read a fiction book. It's all, it's all nonfiction. I'm only going to read about training. And, and I went through those phases and inevitably I was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I need a hobby. I need something off. I just couldn't, you know, I love like, like you and so many others. I love what I do. I don't see it as work. I don't even like to tell my kids I'm going to work. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, we can, we, we can, we can overdo it on anything, even the good. Okay. Mm. So about that same time, I was traveling to Europe quite often, notably Germany to teach our, our Exos uh, week-long mentorship courses. And I'll never forget I was with my friends, uh, Nina and Nico, who are now married and have a beautiful baby girl. Uh, they, they had the radio on. And I'm like, what is this music? And it was, it was electronic dance music. It was, it was house music. But it was just on the radio, which at the time, outside of maybe some uh, tracks, there really wasn't anything that sounded like house in the way that, that day on modern radio in, in the U.S. and probably in Canada. And so I, I just, I came back home and I started downloading all this music. And then my wife and I, Zed, I don't know if anyone knows Zed, but uh, Zed, I, I, he, he had a concert in Phoenix and I'd never been to a DJ concert and I absolutely fell in love. I mean, I felt as close to a unavoidable flow state as I ever have between the light show and the music. Uh, and that was it. <laughs> just to be clear. And the reality was I fell in love with it. So the next week I, you know, I said, gosh, how cool would it be to try to learn a new, to learn a new skill? You know, I've spent all this time studying, learning, and I teach people, let me, let me learn a new skill. And then everybody studied all the hardware you need to have. And I read as much as I could on the common mistakes that DJs make just getting, getting started. So, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be a perfect rock the road when you're learning something but i said listen if you're going to climb a mountain you make sure you have the right equipment you know literally and figuratively i wanted to do the same for djing so i'll never forget i bought everything in october and 10 days later i think it was halloween and our friends who had heard about this their dj 
canceled on them. So they said, hey, do you mind coming? Literally, I'd have my equipment for five, six days. That, that, that was it. So I had about another five, six days to do this party. And I stayed up all night long. I, I just went to work the next day. I was, like, I was like I had a newborn again, but I felt energized, Scotty, from I felt energized. And I was using all the principles and I, ha- I had my, my, my tractor DJ set up and I went and, and there happened to be a DJ who was just attending. Now, funny thing, who's this DJ you have? Like, and how long has he been doing this? Phenomenal. I mean, Scotty, I literally have been doing it for five days. But <laughs> it, just, it just goes to show that, that if, if you can provide context, if you understand the learning journey, and we now know this actually in research, that you'll get more out of the journey because you know where to pull from. It's kind of like you give someone a really good cue. They still have to go sprint. But if you can give them a really good cue while they sprint, it helps them sprint a little bit better. And I think I kind of did that for myself. So fast forward, and you know, I think I have something like 30-something mixes on SoundCloud under the handle Mouver. I've never DJed in the club, but I've done a number of, of friends' weddings, which for me is actually higher risk uh, than a club because I'm going to see these people again. So <laughs> it, it, uh, it was amazing. Now, to answer your question, Music, uh, when you're DJing house music, it is, it's about a flow of energy in that, you know, you're not going to, if you go from 128 beats per minute to 118, it's just going to suck the energy out of the room. It's like having a coach that's really high energy for the first half of the session and then says nothing for the next half. It just doesn't suit people. So for me, when you look at the design of music, it is around energy flow. It's around the energy of the music. Is it high tone? Is it low tone? Beats per minute. And very dance from one song to the next and the journey that you're going to take people on. And so for me, the way you bring a mix together that really speaks to someone emotionally has a lot of analog to how you design a physical training program to make sure the, the load doesn't spike too much, but it doesn't also drop too much. It's gradual, but also in how you interact with people. You know, music is a dance between the DJ and the dancers. And coaching is also a dance. But every time I give a cue, I give a bit of feedback, I look at the eyes, I look at the body language, I look at the movement, and I see, did that track work for them? Was that their song? And if it wasn't, what do you do when you're a DJ? When you start to see people leave the dance floor, you script, you put on the new track, and you use that as feedback to keep that dance floor alive. I think that's a brilliant coaching because in the eyes in the in the movement and in the words of your athletes is the information you need to know whether or not that coaching track is working this is a very interesting in the sense that i'm going to splinter this on you and i want to see where you go with it and that is so you know you go to a party and there's going to be people who like listening to michael jackson and there's going to be people who like listening to house and when you're training athletes there's going to be guys who pick up this and pick up that so how do you differentiate um playing to the crowd and playing to the individual when you're talking about a sports environment yeah yeah it's a really it's a really really good question so if we stick with uh stick with the music metaphor i'll see if we can if we can go there so the reality is people still need a rhythm they still need a beat. They still need a baseline. And oftentimes, this is the thing that just sets the pace, sets the tone of a session, right? So I would draw an analog between the beat, the drum, the percussion of a song 
to what I call global coaching. And that energy you bring to open up a session, what are we doing today? Uh, why are we doing it? How we're going to do it? And then the energy you bring to the physical session itself. You know, the other day we had a 45 minute sprint session where all we were going to do is, you know, 10 to 12, 10 meter sprints. Scott, that's a pretty boring session. So for me, I, I brought the 128 beats per minute. I brought a higher energy. I brought a higher beat count. I wanted to make sure that we could stay focused the entire time, keep our energy up even during those breaks. So when you did that sprint, you could bring everything that you have. Now, some people, when it comes to the vocals, some people are going to like Taylor's. Others are going to want Bon Jovi. Some people are going to want a futuristic sound. Other people are going to want to hit, hit the oldies. And at the end of the day, you're right. I don't think you can serve all of those individuals when you're in the front of 10 to 15 people. So for me, when you're globally coaching, you set the tone of the session. Rather than saying, what music do each of these individuals like? The metaphor I would use is, what music is going to best serve this session? Is it slow and easy? We need to have a reggae feel. Is it fast and furious? Let's bring 135 beats per minute. However, at the same time, you got to be able to translate that to the individual. And that's where, for me, when you have those breaks in between the reps and the sets, are you going up to those individuals who you know typically don't gravitate to the track of that session? Hand is on the shoulder. How are you feeling today? I think you're looking good. What do you think, right? Are you getting out of this session what you feel you need to? So on and so forth. And even then, it's not just on the training floor. It's that transition when they're walking to the session. It's that transition when they're walking away from the session. And I think at the end of the day, people are going to tolerate, as they do at a wedding, songs that they like and don't like, as long as they know that that total musical experience is bringing them to a better place. That's awesome. I like that. I know the I sort of know the answer to this because you kind of answered it at the beginning but I want to just hear you say it what do you love about what you do what do I do there's there's many many ways to to answer what I do um, let me start with the highest one which is going to be the answer I believe I would use no matter where I was in the world and who I was for. And that is for me, I'm in service and I work for of learning. And by the idea of learning, I mean an individual that is guided to be better each day than they were the day before. And for me, a big part of being better is built on the idea that is tattooed on my forearm. And that is this idea of truth. It is one's personal truth. It is scientific truth. It's someone with that information to be a better version of themselves day in and day out. So I commit myself to learning every single day in one way or the other, help others do the same. Because for word learning is indistinguishable from the word development. Now, if that's the thousand foot view, what do I do at the, at the hundred foot view or the 10 foot view? Uh, Scotty, I have 
an amazing job here with Irish rugby. And again, as you know, I don't like the word job or work, so I should say I have an amazing opportunity here. Uh, what's unique about Irish rugby is that it is a centralized union, which means all four of our professional teams, Leinster, Munster, Connacht, and Ulster, wrap up under the national governing body, which is obviously the, the home of the, of the national teams themselves. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar with rugby, there's two codes. There's 15s and there's sevens, which means 15 players versus seven players. And what I do is I work across all entities, national and professional, specifically leading the charge for athletic performance. I think last count, we have about 35 conditioning coaches throughout the country that work within rugby professionally and 15s and sevens from those at the coalface of development all the way to the individuals that work with uh, the players that wear the green Jersey and, and obviously fight for their country every single time they step on the pitch to play this great game. And with that, I look at my responsibility. Number one is in service of the player. At the end of the day, everything we do has to be about the player, has to be about the team. At my level, the way I approach trying to support our players is through, I would say, another three Ps. And I, I take this one from my good friend, Dave Howarth, that oversees our, our Connect setup. And that is people, uh, programs, and places. I try to do in my position, which brings me probably the greatest joy, is coach our coaches, is look at our individuals and help them develop their own professional development plans that are in service of their own interests in terms of their club with the direct insight of helping the player. Uh, number two, because we are centralized, we have a great opportunity of intelligence. And believe me, there's plenty of intelligence in this country and in this game. So when it comes to programs, it's a matter of building programs, the way we look at training load and the way we look at monitoring and the way we look at recovery or whatever technologies we use. It's building systems around all of those various programs and technologies to bring continuity where continuity makes sense. And, and when I talk about continuity, that means we all operate off a similar set of principles, whether it be professional or national, and off those similar set of principles, we all weigh in every single year to make sure that the way we're approaching that program is moving the country, but most importantly, moving our players the best opportunity to perform at their best on the pitch. And then finally, it's places. It's, it's where we work. So, you know, for me, it's a matter of ensuring from the equipment we buy to the facilities that we design to really the environments we create from a training perspective that they're fit for purpose. And the environment uh, cultivates as much performance and learning and growth as, as the coaches that operate within them. So there's a lot in that. Every day is a little bit different. But at the end of the day, I believe that coach development is player development. And that's the level that I operate day in, day out, as well as still keeping my teeth sharp and the sword sharp on doing some speed coaching whenever I can get out there. What, uh, what scared you the most um, when you first walked into that opportunity? I think when you look at stepping into anything that you've never experienced, it is... Yes, the fear of the unknown 
And I think what scares us about the unknown is the fear that we won't have the skill set to deliver what that environment, what those players require. So did that fear sit somewhere? I recognized it. I didn't harp on it because what outweighed it was the knowledge that no matter what I was going to face, hopefully I was going to be humble enough to recognize when there was an opportunity for improvement and confident enough in my approach to learning that I'd be able to find that solution, if not immediately, shortly thereafter, and not present myself as something that I'm not. So from day one, I made no claims to be an expert in rugby. I claims to be an expert in data science and GPS. I simply presented who I was on that day as best I could, but most importantly, showed everyone that I had a desire to learn. I had a desire to get to know who they were, but even more than that, I had a desire to help them be better so they could make their players better. And inevitably that approach has outweighed any fear. And I think hopefully my, my colleagues would agree as has served me and everyone I interact with well. That, that, that struck me for a second. I want to play off that. What, you know, sport performance environments are sometimes, um, I would call them untruthful environments. People have a hard time being honestly themselves because they fear um, the perception of others. And that's not an unusual thing in society and stuff. But what you just talked about was really just being truthfully, and to your point, truth, and honestly yourself and seeing where the chips fall. That's, that's, um, that's not easy to do uh, in, in performance sport environments. And I admire that in the fact that you just said that, um, how, how do you do that? How, how do you, um, do that? Well, first and foremost, Scotty, it's a credit to, to this environment. Mm -hmm. It's a credit to the place that I stepped into, uh, that allows and cultivates individuals to work hard, be disciplined, uh, pursue the fringe of high performance and excellence, but at the end of the day, to, to be themselves, to contribute, to not look at ourselves vertically from a hierarchy, but rather recognize that when there are five people in a room, it doesn't matter where those five people come from or the level that they operate at, that there is an opportunity to contribute. And unselfishly, we have to share the same mental model which is in service of the player. And thus, wherever we can gain an insight to better serve that player, we need to be op open and humble enough to accept and see and apply that information. So the environment that everyone here in Irish rugby created prior to me coming in cultivated the opportunity for me to answer the question in the way that I did there. I think there are plenty of environments that operate probably more off of fear and mm. they unbeknownst to them at times cultivate individuals who don't feel like they can express themselves or push the fringe because there's the fear factor on all of anybody gets hurt. It's just your fault mm -hmm. versus where, where, where I, and we come from here. It's interdisciplinary. Quite literally, it is one for all and all for one. Cliché, but in truth, that's what a multidisciplinary team is. And 
at the end of the day, I tried to be honest in setting expectations. And when I was honest in setting expectations, hopefully I got early feedback on what people thought about those expectations. Is the timeline, is the quality, is what's going to be delivered up to par? And inevitably, I think if you are clear in setting expectations, you're going to have an opportunity to be yourself in in achieving those. But I'll recognize, I'll be the first one to recognize, Scott, I talk to many people who are phenomenal operators and the environment that they're in does not cultivate their ability to really contribute and grow as an individual. And I just want to make sure that no one within my area or really anywhere within Irish rugby would say we work so hard on developing people, whether they're the one behind the player or the player themselves, we're people focused. Cool. I'm going to use that uh, moment to segue to a piece I do in every podcast, which has discovered this book called The Day You Were Born a number of years ago. And it actually helped me find uh, my purpose because there was a very unique story around it, which I won't go into. But uh, I often read these and many times people will go, wow, that uh, really resonates. Now, I read years before I came on and it's a it's a it's a t- tough one. So I want to see whether there's a truth that you read here in it or not. So it's a combination of astrology and numerology written by a woman named Linda Joyce. So you're an Aquarius seven born January 25th. And your purpose is to align your will with his using your faith to protect you so that you can manifest your dreams without becoming hurt or being destroyed. He that is disconnected to one to one place will seldom be content in another. Sorry, he that is discontented in one place will seldom be content in another. Aesop, Greek storyteller. Aquarius sevens are gifted, but that gift can lead to destruction unless they have developed from within. They need faith, a belief in themselves and in something greater. They will live with divine discontent until they accept a spiritual path. Others will take advantage of them if they remain innocent and unable to protect themselves. If they are street smart, they could take advantage of everyone else. Aquarius sevens are incredibly intuitive and struggle with depression and mood swings. They are creative and able to pass through doors closed to others. If spirit takes the lead, uh, Aquarius sevens will have an unrelenting will. They are perfectionists and dictators. They can be judgmental. They have a great big heart, but need to learn to let him lead the way. They must learn compromise so that they can enjoy life. If ego takes the lead, these souls are perfectionists and control oriented. They doubt themselves and don't want anyone to find out. They can be incredibly successful in their professions. Music or the creative industries may attract them. Without spirit, they could be abused or given, abu- given to abuse. They have no sense of boundaries. They, are only, they only achieve balance when they find their center and open their heart. Hmm. You have a connection with Charles Dickens. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but uh, I, I read it for everybody because it always. What's uh? What's well, is he was he born on the twenty fifth? Yeah. Really? Actually, I'll see what because it's not always the twenty fifth that is the date. It's uh, it's how it links to the other new numbers that are att- attached to that uh, sign. So I'll tell you what uh, his date of birth was. I, I be I because I I have a funny story about that. So I, I haven't lo- known you long enough to know whether that truly is. Uh, it sa- sa- sounds um, he was born on February seventh, 
But he is a, as okay. an Aquarius seven. An Aquarius seven, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I think I think you can you can find a bit of truth, some more than others, in in all of those descriptions. And a- absolutely, I would say that I see I see features, and I'll I'll maybe highlight one, and that is I do at times feel this. Uh, what I've always called a prison of passion. Mm. And by prison of passion, that can sound quite negative. Um, but I probably use the word prison more to say something that I, I cannot remove myself from. I am encapsulated with this, this feeling, this emotion that I tend to call passion. And I am either the laziest person in the world or the most committed. I really have no middle ground. My wife will tell you that Uh, each night I find great solace in cleaning my, cleaning our kitchen. It's the one thing that's my responsibility. My wife gave it to me. So I never learned, well, how am I going to clean this kitchen (laughs) as best as best ever? (laughs) I find great satisfaction in, in cleaning the kitchen completely. And, you know, when I make a presentation, I will commit a ridiculous sum of time to it. I mean, I will spend time just something looks off by a millimeter. It just bothers my eye. So if I'm going to put something out into the world, whether it be a coaching session, a presentation, or cleaning the kitchen, um, I tend to commit to it uh, at, at a level that probably goes beyond what maybe is required. And I've, I've found that more than anywhere else in the current process of writing, of writing my, my book. And I've, I've read about a number of authors about how long they take to write books. And I, and I, I talked to a lot of authors and I asked them, and many of them had seen three, five, six, seven, eight years. And I, I can see why, because for me, I will at times agonize over words, over sentences until that sentence, until that phrase, until that paragraph speaks to me. And for me, at times, it can feel it can feel painful. It can feel mentally um, exhausting. I'll go to bed and just lay there for an hour, two hours, feeling like I'm never going to put another word down on the page. But without fail, I wake up again and I start again, and the words will will come out. Uh, the, the kitchen will be cleaned, and the next coaching session is a little bit better. And the frame of that slide is is just a little bit more precise to my eye, but. And thinking of that, I don't, I don't know when Steve Jobs was born, and I am by no means comparing myself to Steve Jobs. One thing when I read his biography that stood out was this idea around the, the quality of what you bring into this world, whether it be material or immaterial. And the fact that he would spare no expense on making sure even the quality and the sheen on the hardware inside of the freaking computer was as nice as that on the exterior. And for me, I think that speaks to the principle of, of excellence, of creativity, of a desire to have the energy that pierces through your veins pierce into the world through what you do. And for me, I have this energy and this energy for out truth and and truth for me is never perfection but it's pursuing perfection and i think that in too much quantity can be an issue 
which is why I call it a prison of passion. But for me, it's worth it. And at the end of the day, I've had to develop my own, let's say, mechanisms to tame it. And we've talked about it. I use music. I use family. I use the kitchen. And most notably and most recently, I have fully committed to mindfulness meditation on a daily basis, which has allowed me to tame uh, that passion, so to speak, uh, amongst the other things I've mentioned. Tell me about your wife. What is she? What is the role she plays in in being your, your yin to your yang, so to speak? Man, you know, I, I think I'll never forget the the first week my wife and I started dating. <laughs> this, I was dropping her off, and I was, you know, I was eighteen at the time, and I was saying, you know, I'm I'm not really looking for a girlfriend. I'm going to college next year. And, you know, fast forward now, we'll have been married 10 years this year and, and together for, for almost 20. Uh, she, she's the love of my life. And I think most importantly, Scott, she makes me, she makes me better. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't feed in to any of the things that, um, let's say, would, would make me worse. So when I'm looking for a compliment, even if it's not intentional, I'm not going to get it. Uh, if I'm... <laughs> In fact, she's gonna she's gonna she's gonna hit me even hard to say, "Listen, you, you, it's about execution, it's about working." But she she knows she knows she knows when I need a kick in the butt, and she knows when I need a pat on the back. And she is remarkable at it. It's it's intuitive to her. Uh, for me, she's she's the model in ways I I aspire towards, in that she's selfless. Uh, when we lived in Phoenix, Arizona, she she had a dog rescue called Animal Lifeline. And literally our garage and her house was full of animals. And she was just so giving. My wife had a, a tagline with her company, Animal Lifeline, that, you know, her goal was to save every dog in need. And this just says something about her. And I'll never forget that she put that online. And someone on Facebook said, well, that's that's a pretty bad goal. Because you're never gonna you're never gonna achieve that, mm-hmm. and my wife typically she she doesn't get bothered by those kind. Of, really, really hurt her because her her intention behind the comment was of of the purest variety, and she truly believes that that that's what she wants to do is is to help animals. They just speak to her, and I'll never forget when she told me that. I said, "Listen, any any other goal, any lesser goal, to save every single dog but one." in you achieving and helping less animals than any other aspiration. So the fact of the matter is that goal is the most pragmatic goal anyone could have because it'll lead to you saving more animals uh, than any other endpoint, any other objective. And I think that that comment, that desire suggests to me that, that she is spirited, she is creative, she is, is whimsical if you see her with our children, uh, but most importantly, she balances that with being grounded, uh, having the biggest heart in the world. Uh, she is selfless. And at the end of the day is the battery that drives my passion. And she's the one that calibrates it and ensures that it's it's directed uh, most appropriately for our family, but also for this world. So love her to death. Awesome. How did uh, becoming a dad change you? Oh, <laughs> How does it not? <laughs> <laughs> other than sleep deprivation uh, yeah, and all the other things yeah. that come with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
you know, being number one, being a father allowed me to understand my father and my parents so much more and appreciate uh, the responsibility and the gravity of the responsibility that you take on when you bring lives into this world. And being, being a father is both the greatest thing and the most difficult thing. And the difficult part isn't the children, but rather thinking about the world that they're going to have to navigate in the future. And it is what, it is what absolutely scares me more is that at the end of the day, they will go out into this world on their own and they will need to be equipped to deal with whatever comes their way. So for me, it is the gravity of making sure that my children have as best I can an amazing upbringing, but absolutely having the tools to get out of this world uh, what they want. And so for me, I see that as the challenge, but then also the greatest joy uh, to see my, my daughter fall in love with philosophy books and the, the Guinness Book of World Records and facts. And we can start talking about this idea of truth in its literal form. So exciting uh, to see my son have an affinity for, for football and want to want to play on his own, you know, is just fantastic to see a love for sport. Um, but it's, but, but for me, in addition to seeing that whimsy and, and seeing what your, your children fall in love with, it's also making sure that you capture those moments in their upbringing to teach them a lesson that hopefully will stick with them in a future scenario when they're on their own, just a little bit better. Um, I don't think you'll be insulted by me saying this, but you strike me as a little bit of a perfectionist. I have the same streak. I'm wondering how your, because uh, I felt a the most difficult thing about becoming a dad was the loss of control, so to speak, because your mm. kids control everything. How did you manage that? In, in as a as a guy who was used to sort of defining his pathway and his and his situations and his situational environments, in some sense. Did I mention that I'm now doing mindfulness? <laughs> <laughs> you did. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. <laughs> so for me. You know, there's just, there's moments of pure chaos and you're looking at this, you've had a long day, you know, the, the missus is tired and I'm tired and these two kids are just running on this sugar high and there's nothing you can say, knock them out of the attitudes that they're, they're adopting. And in those moments, you, you, you obviously, you never, you're never going to get it right every single time, but at least on one hand in reflection, I try to say, look at that energy, look at that vitality. If anything, I should be learning from them to some degree, but it's, it is a, it is an exercise in negotiation and mm -hmm. I, I'm still learning how to get better at it. Uh, but the reality is there's nothing like a massive deep breath to recenter yourself and, and try to uh, re-engage with the scenario. But at the end of the day, I actually, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm a perfectionist things, but not everything. And when it comes to my children, I believe that, that, that chaos creativity is, is nurturing 
It cultivates. They got to find themselves. And I don't want them to have a rigid upbringing at all. So we constantly trying to throw different things at them and see what sticks, see what they like, see what they don't like. So when it comes to them, I don't think perfection is, is the process that we're using. But uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact that some days uh, you, you could hit pause. <laughs> well, if it comes back to performance environments, you know, when you look at athletes and, and their ability to improve, you've got to have structure and systems, but you also have to have some chaos for them to have to absorb yeah. and manage, right? Consistency is the key. The con- consistency with the chaos somewhere in there lies a perfect formula for child development. <laughs> Tell me about your book. Um, what kind? What's the legacy you're trying to craft uh, in, in the writing of your book? <sighs> Scott, it's the most important thing I've ever done. Hmm. It, it is from, from a professional perspective. I... I think back to that, that moment we talked about a little while ago, the form within. I mean, Scotty, this is, this is the form within. This is the book. And, you know, I feel, I feel it's a good time to write it. I've been at these ideas for over a decade now, and I feel I have a story to tell. And I, I feel people can, can learn from my story. So the book is, it's a lot of things. It's my personal story. At the same time, it's the story of the science. And by the story of the science, it's, it's the story of how we use language, how we use words to teach people to move. And it's the story of the art. And it's everything that the science cannot tell us, but intuition can. So for me, you learn about me, you learn about the science, and you learn about the interaction between me and the science, which we'll call the art, the practical side of it, the models. And I don't shy away from upgrading people's understanding of the literal truth, but I also don't shy away from my understanding of what truthful application of the principles uh, are. The book is called The Language of Coaching, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement. And for me, a book that I've always wanted it's the book that I felt was missing, and I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that it is a gift to our industry, and inevitably the people that ultimately reap the rewards are the athletes, the clients, the patients, and, and the children who deserve to have people as good at how as what they coach. Awesome. Well, you know what? Uh, I usually finish with what's, you know, what do you want people to remember you for? Um, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to finish with that. So, you know, when, when you're gone from this earth, uh, hopefully not for a long time, what do, you, what do you want people to remember you for? There's not a, there's not a day that goes by that I'll think about that. And for me, kind of like our discussion around body image and losing weight on the surface. It looks like by even asking that question that we have this inflated sense of ego that we just want to be remembered for some personal satisfaction or some personal agenda. But at the end of the day, when you're gone, you're gone and you're not going to really care what happened. But For me, as I live on this earth now, I want to affect positively 
as many lives as possible. But I want to do it in a very specific way, Scott. I don't want to give someone a product like a piece of food that just makes them feel better in the moment. I don't want to give them a bike that they're going to outgrow or need to upgrade in the future. I want to be able to develop people by giving them a gift that will continually give back and serve them the rest of their life. Thus, every word, every resource, every interaction that I truthfully try to have on this earth is to help people fall in love as I have with learning, understanding how to learn, which for me is understanding yourself, having a self-awareness that allows you with each breath each day to say, what went well? Let's do more of it. What didn't go well? How can I get 1% better? If I can empower people with those views, those emotions, and those strategies, I think oh, I've left this world a better place. That sounds awesome, sir. Well, um, we haven't had a lot of time to spend chatting with each other. And selfishly, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast was to have the opportunity to sit down with guys like you who are doing great things and really learn about what makes you tick. And uh, this has been a great hour for me just listening to you and, and chatting and hope it's not the last time. And I want to thank you for taking the time. Scott, thank you. Because what you what you've done here is you've created a forum for people to look and hear about what happens under the hood. And by looking under the hood, you you quickly realize that there is far more than what the surface suggests. And in their lives, I think that the great learnings for everybody. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your time, buddy. You have a great day and uh, hopefully bump into you again soon. You too, Scott. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de St. Rome. Thanks for